Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, one of the greatest bass players in not only punk music, but music in general. Member of Fugazi, The Mesthetics, Kariki, and Ataxia, Mr. Joe Lally. Joe, how are things? Uh, things are, I guess, as good as they can be under the circumstances, but thank you for having me. You're back in D.C. now, right? Yes. So how much of a change have you noticed in D.C. after being in Rome for as long as you were? Yeah, you know, that was eight years uh, that I was away, and that was really, we left just as the housing um, fiasco began. Um, so we left in 2007, so we were literally, you know, months ahead of just things really going badly for that and the way things you know rebounded from that was of course uh, you know a lot of gentrification in cities and uh, I toured you know through the states during those eight years I came back and did tours as I did in other places but I got to see very slowly I, I noticed what was going on in America because the cities that I had been to before, you know, were slowly changing because there'd be like three year periods or something where I'd come back and do a, do some shows on the West Coast or the East Coast and uh, over to Chicago or something. And it was just like, whoa. Um, but they really, they were still, they were still changing. And, you know, places, as I suppose everyone already knows, you know, places like Cleveland, um, there were some more interesting things to see in a place, you know, that you didn't, you didn't associate with Cleveland in the past. And there are vegetarian places to eat and stuff like that. Um, but boy, a a city like Baltimore, that did not happen. Um, and so I don't, you know, I, I don't spend enough time in a place like Chicago, but, um, I, you know, we know that we all know that there's a lot of, uh, violent gun violence and stuff still going on there so the country has just just went through so much change then so you can imagine yeah coming back to dc was a big that was a pretty big change um mainly because even though uh it seems that the the amount of people that live in dc didn't change that much the amount of people that come and go from see every on a daily basis every day really seem to have increased so much. Um, so it was pretty weird, you know, and, and all the, really all the, you know, to put it bluntly, all of the black families, almost all of them, you know, could, they had their property, you know, they, they were offered enough to sell their property and move out into Maryland or into Virginia. And, uh, the city just completely changed. So it's, yeah, it's a completely different place. I don't know, you know, I don't know what to do with any of it. I don't, I don't really like, um, I don't like living in a city that I can't afford to live in. So I don't like the way things are. Uh, I suppose, you know, you can say that it's a safer city than in the nineties when a lot of people were shooting each other. Um, but you know, the things that you lose about, about culture because everything just has to keep feeding the economy. Like if that's the answer, you know, we're obviously doing something very wrong in this country. 
Um, but I'm not a politician, and I don't pretend to be. Well, what do you make of the current uprising in the streets? Do you see real and, su- and, and sustainable change coming from this? I, I mean, one only hopes that, you know, something comes out of it. Like, what, whether everybody's asking for the same thing or not, I don't know. Um, we always thought that uh, protests could be done um, intelligently. Um, you know, I, I still... I think I think we're all as much, you know, Malcolm X as we are Martin Luther King. Um, I don't know how else to look at that, but that's the way that I always look at that, that, you know, that is in all of us and we're always trying to figure it out, you know. Um, because right away I want to say the government is fucking clueless and always trying to keep everything the way it is and the way it knows how to control things and the people have to demand what needs to change. They have to go. You have to go and get it. They do not. They never pick up on what the majority thinks. It took forever, you know, for for gay marriage to make it into like reality. And it's like, come on, you know, um, th- those kinds of things that you have to demand to be changed. You, sh- you shouldn't have to, but, you know, go- a government like the United States was set up to be, should be a government by the people, of the people, for the people. And, it, you know, we all know that it is not that anymore. So when people start crying about how s- something sounds like socialism, like everyone being able to go to the hospital without going into the poorhouse at the same time, you know, they, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Um, there, because if this is supposed to be, you know, the original idea of this country and it's still in effect and it's still, you know, the place people dream of being and all that stuff, it's just a joke. You know, it's just a strange uh, myth that people keep their, you know, clenching their eyes to believe it's still there. But it's clearly not what it was. The person in office now um proves that you can go in there and start changing it to be some horrible thing you never wanted it to be. And uh, it's, you know, for all the wrong reasons, you know, these, these things are changing and it's just disgusting. Um, I, you know, I, I, I can't go on about this because I so much to try to articulate. It's fucking impossible because the list is so long. True. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. It can be said there is a certain rage that is not in main that is not as mainstream in music as it once was. The underground always seemed to rise up and become mainstream with their opposition to people like Nixon, Reagan, Bush. But under arguably the most divisive president of all time, it can be said that artists aren't doing enough to challenge him right now. Why do you think this is, or do you disagree with that completely? Um, there's you know there's always. Uh... It's hard to perfectly navigate what is going on because I have not been paying attention to what the main output of what would be called independent labels today are generating as independent labels, you know. Um, I I was working for a a local promoter um, 
even up until uh, the time of this starting in March and I was working in the box office just selling tickets and, uh, and you know, basically happy to have what was sort of a normal job three days a week that I knew I was getting paid for. Um, because, you know, I am extreme and so I'm going to keep trying to do music and um, stretching, you know, my financial situation to the end to like just make sure I can keep doing music. Um, so I was happy to be doing that, but the, the local promoter, um, that I was working for, like all that music that took place in, um, what would be like a venue that held a couple of hundred people, venue that held a thousand, another that held 6,000 and then up into, you know, that the outdoor sort of lawn venue and the arena venue. All those, I was like, I just didn't know most of the acts. So, you know, I don't even know how much I can comment about a lot of this because one of my favorite venues to see some, to see shows in is, is a place called Rhizome in Tacoma, um, D.C., um, which they call Tacoma Park, which is also part, is, is stretches into Maryland or whatever, and um it's this little neighborhood, and there's a house in the neighborhood, and people, like a collective, has made that house a venue. And it's right there in the neighborhood, but just far enough away from people for it to work. And so I'm seeing really weird, you know, people are playing in the living room, and you're sitting in the dining room watching them. But it is a house that's for that, and the be- upstairs bedrooms are, is a, you know, art shows are done there. So it's like a gallery upstairs. And that's, you know... That's my idea of like the best place to go see things, you know, and I'll go see Hamid Drake play there, which is what all I ever, you know, want to do is see someone like Hamid Drake play. And then uh, the last one, the last shows I got to see there before everything in the world stopped was uh, Irreversible Entanglements, um, a local bass player, Luke Stewart is the bass player, and uh, they also come from participants of that band come from New York City and uh, the singer More Mother comes from Philadelphia um, but you know this is not a mainstream band this is not mainstream music and it's totally what I'm interested in and I'm sure it is always, that type of thing is always going on at some level somewhere you know so it's not like this stuff is not going on and people are not talking about what's going on in the world because they are I think what's happened possibly is just that it is easier to hear music that doesn't seem to address that, that just seems to be people trying to find uh, what can be popular and sell. And so I don't, but I don't know because I don't spend enough time listening to that stuff to um, try to wade through it and and figure out who, who actually has something to say and who doesn't. I just don't like the sound of so much pop music because it's pop music, I guess. And so much of it sounds that way to me. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just not your, I'm, I don't know if I'm the right guy to ask about <laughs> what happened, what happened to the music scene, you know, from, cause it, well, what, I'll tell you what happened. It changed, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's perfectly normal, right? For it to change. It just has to, everything has to just keep changing. And you just can't have the same thing happen over and over again. But on some level, it, you know, you could say that it does happen over and over again because people discover that they have 
the tools to do those things, to write songs and post them on the internet, even if there isn't a label behind it and no one's backing it up. You can put, you can execute music, record it, and have it available for people all over the world to hear. You know, and that's not totally, that's not normal in the sense that you couldn't do that 25 years ago um, the same way. You couldn't, you just couldn't do that in the early 80s. You could, you know, and so all kinds of other things happened. And now these kinds of things happened, you know, and that's how we heard about like Pussy Riot, you know, and that's how we, you know, discovered other things. But um, I'm going on and on and I'm not sure what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> You've said that occasionally the members of Fugazi will get together and jam. How much do you guys discuss current affairs or is it really just a place of friendship and playing music when you talk or get together? It, it would always be, you know, part of our part of our friendship and time. We spent so much time together. Of course, we would talk about um, what's going on, but we actually have not gotten together for a long time now, quite obviously because of this. But even before that, I, I mean, really, it's probably me because I started playing so much. And at the same time, I guess it turned out my involvement with the aesthetics um, and and us going around and playing coincided with um, Bikini Kill playing again and uh, just focusing more on playing before they actually got out and started playing. And so Guy was, um, he was needed at home and he was just home more. And we're now in a position where, you know, it, it isn't just an occasion. It used to be an occasion that I was coming over from Italy and it's <laughs> like, well, since Joe is here, why don't we take advantage of that and we'll all kind of meet you know, and so it was something you could plan for way ahead of time as I planned for for a tour. And then Guy could, could make that exception to come down from New York. Um, you know, because his, his daughter was barely in her teens when that was when I was living in Italy. So that that always instigated it. And, you know, now we haven't been in that position since 2015, you know. And then uh, not long after I finally settled back in here, um, the Mesthetics happened, and I had already started playing with Kariki during that. But not long after the Mesthetics started to play together, we just started to go out and play together, and we really spent more more time playing live than we did, you know, at home in the studio or in our own practice space, which we used to record. So uh, it, yeah, kind of made me a lot of my own fault, although Brendan is in on it with me. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it just hasn't come up. But of course, yes, we we really did spend more time talking, though. So yes, we would talk about current currently what was going on. But I, you know, a lot of this hadn't even happened then. I guess Barack Obama was <laughs> still present. It's like <laughs> Jesus Christ, how old am I? Well, speaking of that, then Fugazi is about as highly regarded in the political activism scenes as it is in music. Have you thought about the impact this statement could have from the band in these trying times? Um, we never, we never, uh, we never tried to act formally as any kind of. I don't know what to make of. I mean, politics seems like whatever it is today. It, I don't know what it ever was. If you read books about what politicians were doing in the 1800s in America, it was just as much a pile of shit it seemed with everyone backbiting and cutting each other's throat and all kinds of weird shit so I, I, I just don't know what to say 
what you you know what you talk about and when you when you talk about your belief in um, people's ability to to get by i mean you know the only kinds of statements i can make is like the world is dealing with overpopulation and you know there's a you can look up um mike wallace interviewing aldous huxley in the 50s and it's you know black and white tv and mike wallace is chain smoking and um, the, the edges of the screen are all warped because it's some like video of a TV or some shit. And it's an amazing interview where he's interviewing him 20 years after writing um, Brave New World. And he's kind of grilling him about his vision of the future 20 years ago. And this is in the 50s. And all of Aldous Huxley's answers are really well... I mean, the dude was intelligent, and it's clear. They're really well articulated, and everything he says basically has come true. It's more or less. I mean, it's just, you know, he says things like... Mike Wallace is pretty hard on And Huxley is very measured in his response and is like, well... My, my thoughts were based on the fact that overpopulation seems like it's going to be a real problem. And then, you know, then the question is, what do you think will be done as uh, what is the result of this and what's the problem? And he said, well, the only, the only way to be able to control masses of people seems, one, at, by dictatorship, two, by a few very large corporations. Need I say more? <laughs> Why? Like- I mean, it's so you know what I mean. So a lot of a lot of what um, I I just can't, I mean I can't talk about politics as politics, but I can talk about like you know my my hope in individuals and the hope that I get listening to Nina Simone and the absolute absolute disgust I have for human rights. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> why would it take you way back now? And speaking of Nina Simone. What were some of the formative artists that helped shape who you would become as an artist? Um, you know, it was all of the, I think, a, a lot of what informed my bass playing began about 10 years before. I picked up the bass at 19, and I think everything kind of began about 10 years before that when I really started paying attention to music as a thing that can be, like, sort of investigated and uh, discovered, you know, what, what happened whenever um because i had uh my best friend lived next door and he had older brothers and they just had a good record collection but they also had um you know there was a game room with a pool table and then there was a pegboard of singles hanging on the wall like you would have in you know tools in a over a workbench they had like you know fucking james brown singles hanging and so there was this whole it was almost like having a record store to look at you know and investigating that music you know really led to every thing you know about my playing later because that was 9 10 11 years old where 12 where i'm really very seriously listening to all the r&b funk and soul really all black american music just straight up um and that came from that. There weren't a lot of black people in my elementary school or in my neighborhood even. But um, that was just something that, yeah, therefore, yeah, I couldn't talk to 
beyond my neighbors to too many people about. And we went to these afternoon shows where I saw, um, you know, the Spinners and the OJs and the Isley Brothers and Jackson 5 um, at afternoon shows at the uh, Shady Grove Theater, which was this place in the round out in Shady Grove, Maryland, which doesn't exist anymore. And uh, that all of that, you know, was kind of in my background for listening. So that, you know, that was pretty intense because the very first song that I think of as really getting into was Try a Little Tenderness by Otis Redding. And like, I don't know what I knew about, you know, a man being in love with a woman for, you know, I was a kid. Um, but man, something was going on and I wanted to know more about it, you know, um, the way he was talking and it, it just, and the way he sang it, and the way the whole thing was performed was just totally out of control to me. And it just led to everything else I got into and, and James Brown and the Ohio players and Parliament Funkadelic and Sly and the Family Stone and, and especially Graham Central Station, who I saw when I was like 11 going on 12 and, and uh, th- that was the only nighttime show I saw and I came back at like 2 in the morning and then I couldn't see anything after that um, but all of that uh, was there and then I went through classic rock in junior high school um, to come out of that and find, discover punk rock in an art class over the summer uh, for, uh, I was going to a different high school than all my friends so it was like right when I needed to hear something new, I was discovering punk rock, and that was like 1978. So um, it was like right on time. And it still took a few years. So I'd also gone through punk, you know, before I picked up the bass. And it was, you know, I was really hearing Peter Hook and Ja Wobble's uh, use of bass that opened my vision toward everything I had been listening to, my own skewed vision that included all of, like, R&B and funk and soul, because I just kind of saw everything the way that I did. And I had also listened to reggae and dub by then. So there was this something in me that put all that together and I could see very clearly. So I understood what I was aiming at before Fugazi started. I, I understood what my role was going to be in a way, and as I played, I, I put that together. But I had I played in a couple of bands with, you know, um, the singer from Dag Nasty, Peter Cortner. We had done a couple of bands together. He said he would sing. I went and bought a bass. I, that's how it started, and I didn't know anything about it. And I and I didn't learn a whole lot about the bass itself all through Fugazi. I just I, I knew what I wanted to do, and I got better at playing songs and writing songs. But I, I depended on the other people through a lot of that and I didn't know a lot of what I was doing technically I was just doing it so you did start out with the bass because a lot of bass players kind of start out with guitar and then move into bass kind of out of necessity it seems like in a lot of bands you really just went for the bass right away yes definitely I, I definitely saw the bass and nothing else and I've always seen and it doesn't need to have more than four strings I, 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 I bought a guitar that my partner could play and that, you know, I tried to play some, but it, it just, I just don't have the same interest. I relate to the bass, you know, it's pretty straightforward. I respect the shit out of my that. My relationship with that is, 
not the bass itself. You can take the bass anywhere, but my really, my thing is like, I won't play the bass because, you know, because my thing was always guitar players. I wanted to write riffs like Jimmy Page wrote riffs. You know, I, I wanted a guitar player like Hendrix that I was, I was writing this stuff to, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, Ian loved Hendrix and he understood all the music I had listened to previously. So, you know, before we started playing together, so that all fit and, and worked for the both of us to, to make a, the music that we made. But, um, yeah, I always, I always kind of people now, especially like now, if I talk to people about bass and playing bass, it's really, I just have, it so happens that I always, I didn't want to sound like other bass players. I didn't figure out the four division and, and public image stuff that much because I was afraid of trying to sound too much like them. I didn't want to do that. And since I didn't know anything anyway, it was very easy if I didn't try to figure out their songs. I just continued knowing nothing. Well, how did your relationship with Ian come to be? When was the first time that you guys met? And how did you initially get asked to join Fugazi? You know, we met because I, um, thank goodness, uh, Fred Smith, who later was known as Freak, changed his name legally to Freak, a guitar player and beefeater who was on Discord, and the singer, Tomas, lived at Discord House with Ian. Um, they took me on tour because I knew Fred from going to see The Obsessed play. Fred was one of the people who always came to see The Obsessed play. So from 1980 and uh, going, I, that art class I went to, I met Dave Williams, the drummer of the Obsessed at the time, um, and he would talk about his band. And eventually, I went to see them. It took me a while to to finally go see them, and because uh, I graduated in '81, so it took me like fucking a year and a half to go see them or something. And then uh, um, Fred at some show, you know, was like, "I'm playing in a band. You should come see the band. It's called Beefeaters." So. That went on, and I was seeing those bands along with just going down to see all the bands that I saw, which was mostly by myself. There weren't too many people in my neighborhood who gave a shit, and then there were younger guys who um, were into skateboarding, who got into punk, and I occasionally went to shows with them. And uh, I went... I saw Fred at a show, and he talked about Beefeater going on tour, and they needed someone to roadie. And I was just, please, please take me. And I had a job that, you know, had all the benefits, paid for health insurance, and would have sent me to school for anything related to computers. They would have sent me to school for free. And from 82 to 86, <laughs> I, walked, I walked away from that to live in a van, work for a band, because that's all that really spoke to me. And it was really good for me, because I stopped taking drugs and... I went and did that, and uh, and I became vegetarian because they wanted to be vegetarian on the tour, and I was looking for anything that would just get me away from uh, thinking about drugs. So um, it was all just the right thing to do at the right time. And then um, I came back from that tour. Tomas had told Ian about, you know, living in a van with me for two months on that tour, and then I spent the night at their house when we got back, and, you know, because I helped them, like, get the equipment back to everyone's house and um i just stayed there because I, I wasn't living anywhere and uh, ian took us out to lunch the next day and we talked about the tour and i think he just knew that i was very serious about a band and you know because i was just i was rooting for that band but it was you know it meant a lot to me 
and uh, he could see the way I saw it and that I was serious about music and bands. And uh, he asked me to play with him about a week later. He, con- he found me, contacted me to play bass, but he had never seen me play bass. He had seen a Beefeater show that happened after we got back in between during that first week. And I, and I would get up on that tour and sing Pay to Come with him, so he saw me do that and I think he just said well you know he has a sense of rhythm and so forth so well when Brendan replaced Colin did you immediately gel with him and how much discussion were the two of you having on how to perfect that rhythm section because it really is the tightest and best rhythm section in the history of punk rock in my opinion well that's a that's nice to hear um that you know it it isn't I mean you know Brendan and Guy uh, had been in bands together and I was just meeting Ian and I was really just meeting Brendan and Guy. So I, in, in a sense, I, I didn't do, do a whole lot of talking with them out, outside of the band. I mean, not that, you know, we didn't end up spending a lot of time in the band, but I was still like, I was still the guy from Rockville. Everyone else was from DC and they had seen all these shows together. And I had missed half of the fucking hardcore scene that took place, you know, from, you know, during 80 to 83, you know, I came down and saw, like, my threat shows, but everything was based on the shows I could find out about. So I was, I, I did see a bunch of things, but I was going to see them alone and not talking to anybody while I was there. And, um, so when I was playing with them, it was just through playing. Um, we tried Brendan out, and he was still in Happy Go Licky with Guy at that time. And, uh, they were still a band, so we just really didn't know what was going to happen. And then when that band wasn't doing anything during a period, Brendan just kind of committed to play the first show with us, and then I guess they had stopped playing. I don't remember the absolute details of all that Ian does, um, but and he and Brendan probably do too. But um, I, I just, my memory's bad about that. But anyway, he had he had kind of signed on because they must have, someone must have left Happy Go Licky. Mike might have gone away to school or moved to New York to do what he was going to do. And then, um, so Brennan said, okay, let's do this. And so we, we did our first show. But after we had played with him once, everyone just kind of paled in comparison because we could understand what was happening. So Brennan and I just had something going on from the beginning and and he had older brothers and sisters so there was a link between him having heard all of you know the parliament funkadelic if not a ton of like r&b shit that i had also listened to that was also in brendan's you know unconscious music background and uh there was just something going on there and i had no i had no real vision of hardcore music and playing it so I was, you know, what we were writing was what we were writing. And I, and I was extremely aware of, like, public image following the Sex Pistols, you know, as John Lydon's next band. So I was like, you know, what you do is what hasn't been done. You know, that, that was my whole idea about what we were doing was not going to be, it just shouldn't sound like. I mean, I don't, it's it's not like I think we did something and so fucking different. I'm just trying to say that I didn't, A, I didn't know every hardcore band. I didn't buy all those singles. And the bands that I liked were diverse. Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys and the Bad Brains, you know, those and Meyer Thread and 
the Minutemen or something. Those are the kinds of different bands. I didn't know much other hardcore music and the local stuff was great, but I understood that a lot of it sounded extremely similar in its delivery. And I, it, there was nothing appealing to me in that, but there was in always bringing groove into what was happening, you know? So it, that was always in the aim of, of what I was doing. So, Did you notice that you were getting the same sorts of fan reaction everywhere that you went? Or were places like Canada and the UK easier or harder to play than the States? Um, you know, places... It's never it's never easy to generalize. I mean, there's a when you when I think of early shows in England, yes, it is, it is, and then the way the press is over there, and they're like, oh, there's something new, and they all wear wool hats, you know, and we can and we call them beanies, so we can write about things, and we have a tagline and like all that shit, and so you know, it's a little bit silly, um, even when people pay attention, because you know, there's just many people trashing you you know it it just i don't know how but somehow when you just get any attention at all it's always full of like people saying nice things and people saying shitty things and um um skinheads showing up who want to fight ian because he was in minor thread and now he's not doing that kind of a band and you're just like what the fuck does this have to do with anything <laughs> you know like, all the shit that people write and all the you know right away i mean this is what we were. If I looked at myself through the eyes of the press, Fugazi was a post-hardcore band. So how does that speak to you? Well, yeah, because what is post-hardcore? The fuck is that? So then you start to realize why people go like jazz. Well, the, you know, so and so didn't want to be called, didn't want his music to be called jazz. And you're talking about like people you associate with classic jazz music or whatever. And you're like, well, no wonder. Because it started out as this thing, and their vision of what they're doing is wide open, you know? So I knew from the beginning, like, well, I can't pay attention to this shit, or it's just like, I'm done, you know? What the fuck is that? Like, we're, I'm gonna, I'm supposed to be satisfied with having started post-hardcore music or being a part of it or something? You know, fuck that. So I didn't have to be a part of any of that. And it's what you make it to be, and everything is, you know, everyone else's problem. You're, you know what your work is cut out to be, what your goal is and what you want to do, and it's to write songs so you can go out and play them. You write enough songs, you can make an album. Put that out. Go out and play. If anyone gives a shit, they'll show up, and then you have someone to play to. The fact that anyone showed up is, you know, is still totally amazing to me. And as you know, quite impossible now. So it's, it's always been... I've, I've never really... I've never taken it for granted. You know, it's just, it's always been absolutely amazing to me because I think it's what I dreamt of doing when I was a kid and I, I got to do it. So, like, I never expected it to be, like, you know, buying buying a house in the country and, and you know, a boat or some shit, you know. <laughs> well, speaking of the sound, was there ever any initial discussions between you and Ian on where you wanted the sound or what kind of sounds you wanted to experiment with or did it all just kind of evolve once you started to jam in a room? I think it's, you know, it's what you are figuring out about what you're playing, you know, uh, as you're playing it, you know, and he was developing his guitar playing so he could play guitar and sing. And I was really beginning, you know, we were, we were, so we were both sort of at a beginning stage, although he was already a much better guitar player 
than I was a bass player. And before that, he was a piano player and then a bass player before he was a guitar player. So he had a lot going on and he had written a lot of those initial songs, if not the first part that I would then write to, like the beginning of Bad Mouth or something where he plays the guitar line and then I write that bass line to it. He's playing guitar line and I, I play that bass line. I have no idea why I play that bass line. I, you know what I mean? I still don't know. I think I'm just trying to think like my version of what the obsessed sound like. What would the obsessed do? And I have no idea how to play like the obsessed. I just had seen the obsessed play over and over and over live. So like, you know, that just sounded like this thing that I wanted to move in in a way that was this kind of a groove. Like, mm, uh, uh, uh. How do you describe what makes you want to play? I don't fucking know. So you just start hitting some shit. And I, you know, I didn't even know if it sounded in tune. It still doesn't really sound in tune to me. I don't even know whether I should have been playing that. You know, it's weird. But it worked. And Ian liked it. And that's kind of all that mattered. And then you just keep going. You know what I mean? You just you just keep moving from there and you go like, oh, well, if that worked, then maybe this will work. And then you just you just allow yourself to play shit, you know, until you you just come up with stuff. So it's like you're you're tuning into each other. You're honing in on a style just because you're playing together as much as you do and practices are regular and you just keep fucking bashing away at it. I still get together with Ian two, three, and if I didn't have something to do now as work, I, I would be getting together four times a week because that's what we were doing before. And we just tinker at parts. And that's part of what we've always done since we've known each other. So that's, like, totally normal for me. We played together for three years before the first Kariki show. It's the most practiced for a show I am ever probably going to be in my life. I am never going to be that well-rehearsed for any performance unless we take three years to write the next record and we don't get to play because of this. Well, on this, well, on the sound note, how different is that Steve Albini version of in on the kill taker? Um, it's very different because the, the, the music hadn't been finished, um, being written, you know, we didn't really get to the end of the writing of that album. We went to make a few songs with him to see what it would sound like. And we just had a great time with Steve. So we just felt encouraged to just fucking go through all the music that we had at the moment. It just wasn't finished. So part of the problem was that, um, the rest of it and you, and it's out there really to listen to. Oh, so, so um, those MP3s floating around the internet, those are real. They, they should be, I don't know how they could be fake. I don't know if anybody went to the trouble of fake, pretending like they were us recording for Albini. Um, so they, they would be real. I did find that a tape I had once and I played for someone, they said, oh, this is at the wrong, this is at the wrong speed, but I fixed it for you. And I was like, whoa. And it when he then the person was right, you know. <laughs> so like, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, something out there could be weird. There could be something weird about it. But that stuff is, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's us also, we're not in a st formal studio with Steve. We're recording in his basement at the time, you know? And it's it's not like we went into the studios. He would have, he just recorded with Nirvana before we were with him. Like within a month or two before that, he was with Nirvana. So they were not in his basement, for example, you know? 
And we went over to just hang with Steve and see whether it was a feasible thing. I have to say from myself, I totally enjoyed that. I loved it. And I would have, and I would have done it again, given the choice. It's just that I knew as a band, we were capable of trying to do our own thing. We just had to keep trying to do it. But everyone had kind of, um, and I say this because I know I can't produce, so I don't try. So, but I mean, um, yeah, produce. Like those guys can all produce to some degree, and they could, they could produce a record and do a great job of it. I, just, I don't have the ears for it, and I don't have the patience. Back then, I just didn't have the patience. I had ears, but I didn't have the patience. My ears are shot to try and listen to things over and over again. Um, but to listen to them over and over again, I would lose my sense of what any of it is. So I found that I'm a different type of, I'm the type of person who would set everything up so the sounds are the way you want to get them recorded. And then the recording only needs to take place two or three times at most. So I, I understand now that I look at that different. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, well, it could mean that it's bad because I. it doesn't mean that I know what I'm doing. It's, it's just that I have a different way of looking at it. And I know there's other producers that look at things that way. Well, what recording do you feel captured Fugazi at their best? Um, I mean, I think we were also pretty confident about it, which probably helped a lot, you know, by the last record. You know, that's kind of like us doing the work and, uh, and you know, and writing well and everything. So part of, part of the reason the Albini thing might also sound a little weird is because they're just, it's just, we're not finished and we're just like, kind of bashing it out and going like, you know, huh. But it, it just wasn't intended to necessarily work as a record. You know, it, it just, we were just having a good time and enjoying it. And that, you know, that's an important thing to do as a band. It was the only time we got to do something like that. We went out of town and recorded in a different studio. You know, we did that in England, but it was set up in such a different way. It was not, it, it would, I wouldn't use the word like enjoyable because we had a, we did like 39 shows in like 42 days or something. And then we went into a studio that was booked to get the drums down. And then we had to get into another studio, uh, which turned out to be just the mixing room of John Loder's studio. And that's how Margin Walker was done. And that was just, you know, and then we had to record all our parts separately after the drums were in because Loder worked that way. And that, you know, and I mean, that was a good experience to go through too because it just taught us how to do that. But, you know, it's a, it's, it'll always be a kind of a strange sounding record to me. Um, but it doesn't mean that it isn't good. People love that record, you know, and it was, and they're good songs. So it, it just doesn't, a lot of that stuff, you just have to kind of do it and move on. So, you, you know, you can't fucking kick yourself about it. Um, anyway, well, that, did you, you know, feel, did you feel like by the time that the argument came around that the band had said all that it needed to say? Or what were your feelings around that time of the final record? No, I, th I think that, um, I mean, we, we, we could have used a break because, you know, we, we worked very hard for a very long time. So I could have used a break, but I, I could have used the end of the break um, after about six months, you know, a, a year. That would have been a long break. But um, I, I could have I could have went back to it. I could I could at any time um, go back and sit in a room with those three guys and work on music 
and work toward a record and work toward playing live. I really don't care how old we get. And it, like I said, I, I can live with change. I'm perfectly happy. I had no intention of getting younger. Even if I could, I would not fucking do it. I would not live a long time if I have any say in the matter. I don't think I could take it here watching what's going on over and over and over again. I just don't think I can take it. I'm very happy to have the years that I have, and it can be a normal 79 or 80 <laughs> is long enough. But uh, you know what I mean? It's like I can age as a band and just deal with it. You know, it may be, it may be harder for Guy because he was such a physical, like, animal, you know, on stage. But, like... Um, in, from my point of view, as like being able to say things and the intelligence of when you know when we're all together and what goes on and everyone's idea of music and what is interesting to them and what is is going to be good you know to put out, I, you know, I kind of believe in everyone and so I could always continue to do that. Well, there's, there's a street work going on outside. I probably should have shut the window it's not that loud it's it's okay cool but was it important for you to get the song by you out there to show that you could take the lead on vocals or was the vocal thing not something you were really ever passionate about and you kind of just it's, fell into it no it's not like i said i you know i would get up with beef theater and sing a song and and i and i really always um you know probably foolishly imagined myself as lead singer in a band and I and the very first band that I tried to do I was I was the singer in um with a couple of guys in my neighborhood and uh that never went anywhere to say the least and uh and I just you know and I couldn't really sing when I when I was in Fugazi I really couldn't sing I just you know you're not supposed to use your breath when you sing you know you don't it's a way of balancing almost holding your breath you know and uh I just didn't understand any of that when I was trying to do that. So that, that was kind of a disaster in one sense, but I, but I needed to, I needed to figure those things out because there were things that I, I, I had to express as a musician. I could feel it and I had to do that. And I did three solo albums of it, but you can see by their sales, you know, that people didn't absolutely need to hear that. Those are fantastic Um, albums. And if anybody doesn't have them, they should pick them up. Well, so again, it's just like, you know, I needed, I needed to do that. I just, I needed to do that. I needed to do that to the extent that I went out and played those songs on only the bass and I sang them. And that was probably like watching someone cut their skin open and watch the blood come out. I mean, it was, it must've just been painful to look at at times, but I, somehow I had just decided that if I was going to front a band, I had these things had to sit alone as bass and vocal and work. And then I could actually somehow communicate with people who would then accompany me and they didn't have to know everything about the songs and the songs could work. I don't think I always executed that, but I did actually go out and about and try to do that with people who had never met me. And there were some shows where I had to do that. And we would have like a frantic rehearsal and then go play live, you know, an hour later. And it's, you know, those probably weren't great shows, but it all depended on all I needed was the very best. I just needed the very best of improvisers. And uh, and I can and still enjoy doing those songs that way. Um, I do them with Jerry Busher and Anthony Parag. And uh, 
they are basically set up as things we get to just play on, you know, and, and we don't practice. We just kind of get together and do it. I tried demoing them, and actually those guys never really did finish, even though we're all locked down and we can't leave home. They still haven't put aside the time to do anything with them, but they have about 20 songs to fuck with. Well, can you take us through how Talata Records came to be? That was really just looking for something to do when Brendan... I think it may have started when Brendan went to stay with his partner when she was studying midwifery in a, or midwifery in um, out in Portland, Seattle, Portland. I think she was in Portland. How did I forget this? Portland, and uh, so he was spending time there. God, it could have been Seattle. I am out of my mind. I think they might have been in Seattle. Um, uh, anyway, so he started spending longer periods of time that the, away so that the band was never, like, stopped for a month at that point. So I think I was just looking for something to do. And so I started just putting out singles and then quickly realized, like, anybody who wants a single, they just make it themselves. And they're not really looking for some, like, guy hanging around looking for something to do. So uh, it just moved into basically Wino moving back to the D.C. area in 96 and looking for someone to actually maybe do that for him. So I suddenly put myself in that role and I put out, uh, they were called, his band was called Shine at that time, so I put out a Shine single. And then Spirit Caravan, you know, they had to change their name, so they became Spirit Caravan, and then we put out the LP and CD, and I, and I put the, the obsessed first record had gone out of press so i did that so it was kind of you know it was just something keeping me busy and shit then i started i started moving around and i couldn't carry i I was not so wealthy to carry around a a warehouse of records at the same time even if it was a small warehouse were were you excited when you got um, offered the chance to be in a taxi just because you got to experiment with a lot of jazz-like elements in that band Oh, absolutely. I mean, it got me, um, yeah, I got to explore what it was like doing my concept of music, but it was supposed to be for two, it was supposed to be for a show. It was supposed to be to play John's solo music he had made with Josh Klinghoffer, John Frusciante's solo music. So then they, I tried to learn them, but I'm I'm really bad at like picking out music from people's records because that's not how I learned how to play and I never developed that skill very well. So I learned, tried to learn to play nine of their songs, and that turned out poorly. And John was basically like, look, I feel like I'm wasting my time anyway. Like, we get to play with you. Why don't we just write songs? So then we were writing, you know, ten songs that I had to remember in, you know, within basically like ten days. So I was kind of like um, pressed to write ten songs I could remember. And then the weekend before the shows... John says, do you want to record these? So then they got recorded in two days. And then two days after that, the one show had turned into two shows. And then the 10 songs became two records of five songs each. And honestly, the whole thing took place in about 12 days, except for maybe a day or two of mixing that occurred, you know, later. And John did a lot of that. And then I just, you know, I mean, I never really saw them even in the same place together many times after that it was so it was not really a band it was a project they were putting out a record a month for like a year or something like that on record collection 
And so that's where that whole project came from. And I was just kind of, I just ended up like falling into part of that project. So it was really fun to be able to do. And it did help encourage me to do my solo music for sure. Is it safe to say that that band is done? Oh yeah, because it, it existed in those 12 days and it never existed in any form after that. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it, um, I don't, I'm not sure it's a band, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it is of a place in time that normally would never have gotten recorded in the sense of especially two albums. Any other thing I did like that is gone and forgotten unless you happen to be at that show. <laughs> well, your solo work is some of the most free of your entire career and also saw you collaborating in Rome. What was your time like there? And have you been expanding on your solo stuff during this quarantine? Um, a, I'm going to have to make this the last uh, question I can answer. I, I'm going to have to go in okay. a minute. Um, the, let's see, play, playing in Rome was awesome because the, the, like, the fucking caliber of player was so high. The people I did come in contact was through Massimo Pupillo and Zoo. So I immediately was hooked up with this drummer, Joelle Pagliaccia. And uh, even though he ended up not living in Rome, we did get together at the end of my time there again before I left. But I played with the two of them as my first concept of playing the soul, you know, my solo music with two people improvising. And I just got together with them and practiced like a day or two. And then we went off and did a couple of shows together. And uh, those guys are just great players. And if you learn to play an instrument there, you, you end up either like bagging it because you're like, fuck this, because the teachers are so hard on you, or you like, you really learn how to play. So there's a number of, in, you know, number of players that were just fucking outrageously good players. So Joelle's friend, uh, Manlio Maresca, is, uh, he played in a band called uh, Neo, N-E-O, who recorded with Albini, by the way. And they are, you know, Manlio is just a, fucking unbelievable guitar player like he plays felonious monk songs to you on guitar and it's just wicked because i never get to see that you know um but he him and joelle i mean i just can't i can't really afford to just go have a holiday in italy and tour but joelle has been asking me ever since i left like just come back like people say we should play and it's because you know a thousand people don't show up to see me so it's really, it turns into like me paying for like getting over there and coming home. And I can't really like justify leaving my family to do that. So I, I don't go do that stuff. But, you know, I could go do that in Brazil and possibly, you know, if people didn't mind not really getting paid, you know, I could take people to Japan to do that, you know. But it's just, I just can't get, I, it's not going to make me any money or the people I play with. But it, yes, it, the whole concept is there, and it, and I could do it. It's just that I can't, you know. And people don't. Again, it's the kind of music I love to go see, but it, people people aren't making a ton of money doing that, and that's you know the reason why you're not really hearing it a lot. But but yeah, playing there was fantastic for that. Um, in a big way, I was able to formulate a music that I was then able to sort of apply and help to the aesthetics to come together. Uh, before I left Italy, I was I was decided not to go out and play because I should be home, and I just started to make music at home. And I'd ha I'd grab some people 
uh, the people I mentioned, and then you know, Joelle sent me drum tracks, and uh, Monleo came over the apartment and, and just recorded directly. And um, this guy Mike Cooper, um, who's in his seventies, he he came over and played um, a lap steel guitar on that, and and you know that music helped. I played that for Brendan when I got home, and it made him think of Anthony. And that's how the three of us got together. Um, and that's where we are today. I'm going to have to cut this off. That's okay. Um, I'd just like to thank you so much for coming on here. It means a lot to me. And if you're up for it, I'd love to have you on again. Great. Um, yeah, anytime. Just email me and uh, we'll, we'll set up a time. Awesome. Okay, great. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. It's always great to have a member of Fugazi on here. Make sure to pick up all of Joe Lally's work, and you can get bass lessons right now from him. Check out his Instagram at joelally898 for more info on that. This concludes our broadcast day.